poverty. We know that 70% of people who live in poverty actually have jobs. <laughs> um, they're just not making enough to bring them above the poverty line. So, so it would um, it would provide a lot of benefit. I think it would also um, give young people some security as they're starting out to try try things without committing to them. Uh, it would give people, you know, opportunity to do things like, you know, the unpaid internships that young people have to do. Um, there would be, you know, there would be money for that. It would also recognize some of the incredibly important volunteer work and community work that people are doing. Artists that artists do, for example, the work that you're doing. I don't know if it's paid, but um, <laughs> it would it's recognize not. a lot of what's that you're laughing. <laughs> no, I said it, it's not. It's yeah, not right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so basic income could provide, you know, if you're living below a threshold level, it would give you income to do what you love. Welcome back to Beyond Culture, with a podcast that attempts to bridge the gap between culture and politics. I'm your co-host, Abel. In this episode, we talk to Elaine Power and Kerry Lubrick. Elaine Power is the social media coordinator of the Ontario Basic Income Network and co-author of The Case for Basic Income, Freedom, Security, Justice. Kerry Lubrick is the coordinator of the Ontario Basic Income Network. In this episode, we talk about the necessity and the merits of a basic income in Ontario in the face of the current economic and climate crises. Take a listen. Hi, my name is Carrie Lubrick, and I am the facilitator for the Ontario Basic Income Network here in Ontario. So thank you for having me to speak to you and your followers. I think it's a an exciting time right as we go into the provincial election. So I understand you want to learn more about basic income and you have some questions for me. So I'm here to respond. So thank awesome. you again. Yes, thank you. Thank you for stopping by and just, you know, helping us kind of get a better understanding of, you know, the basic income and specifically the basic income network in Ontario, you know, especially ahead of the election. So can you kind of just tell us a bit about what is basic income? Well, first of all, I'm going to say right now in Ontario and Canada, we do not have a basic income. This is something what we're advocating for. So there are some forms of it, I would say. So for instance, old age security for people that are 65 and over. There's also the children's tax benefits, which is somewhat of a form of basic income. Um, but what we want to see is actually an income, an unconditional, uh, needs-tested, universal, universal accessible income payment, cash payment for people that are working age, so age 18 to 64. And this would be sufficient to meet their needs, and it would also provide some security and reliability for an income. And it would also uh, allow people to live in dignity uh, without the threat of losing this income. So I would also point out that um, this basic income that we're advocating for, we want an income that is negative tax base. So it's not for everybody, it's based on your income. Some people say that, you know, the word is out there universal. It's not that everybody would get a check, 
it's really based on your income. When we say universal, we want to say it's accessible for people that need it when they need it. So I hope mm-hmm. that helps out on what we're saying about a basic income. Mm-hmm. And what are the origins of the Ontario Basic uh, Income Network? Okay, well, the uh, open for short. Uh, discussions started around 2013 in Kingston, in Peterborough, Lindsay. They had started basic income movements in those local areas. And as part of that discussion, they thought it would be helpful to have a body to work together across the province. And so around 2017, uh, Open Ontario Basic Income came into being. So basic the province, trying to engage people in basic income, educate people. There's really two main components of the the Open is to communicate, get people involved, build the movement, grassroots to move this along. And secondly, to work with politicians, to advocate to politicians about a basic income. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that we are part of a bigger movement. It's just not... Ontario Basic Income, okay? We have, um, or Basic Income Network, there's national networks, Mm -hmm. one of which is the Basic Income Canada Network, another one is the Basic Income Canada Youth Network, there's the Coalition, and there's Mm -hmm. also, you've probably heard of UBI Works. Mm -hmm. We're all working together to advocate for a basic income, all in different ways. I often look at the national group, as more of a strategic policy going that way, and we all work together. So that's why we're saying basic income now. We're mm-hmm. all working under the header of basic income now, trying to get this going. Okay. And uh, as you were introducing the type of basic income that you're advocating for, I can see that it differs uh, with, you know, there are a bunch of ways of doing, of, uh, doing the basic income. Uh, program. So I want to get into more specifics about how uh, the basic income you're advocating for would work. So you said it would be uh, it wouldn't be universal. So it's not everybody who who would be getting it. It would be uh, it would be needs based. Uh, so could you talk specifically about what's the amount you're thinking of uh, and uh, who would qualify under? And if it's uh, if it uh, reduces as you increase in income, uh, the question now is pertaining to a basic income, the amount, how it would be adjusted, how that would work. So basically, what we're saying um, and what we're adv- advocating for is an income that is above the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all and foremost, that is the main part of this. I will say um, this is for anybody. So you could be working full time. We know minimum wage right now is $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. But people aren't making it on $15 an hour, especially with food and rent and the way things are going. And then you could even look at people on social assistance. Somebody on Ontario Works is only getting $733 a month. Somebody on a disability could be receiving $1,100 a month. So what we're saying is definitely an income that is above the poverty line. 
And of course, as your income increases from a taxable source, your amount of basic income would decrease. So, of course, we would advocate that the amount of income would decrease um, Mm -hmm. slowly with your earnings because you don't want it deducted at 100% right away. We want to give people a handout, get them stabilized and be able to, you know, reduce the income after that. So does that answer your question, Abel? Uh, Yes, I think uh, that brings more clarity. And uh, so it would this basic income be in addition to other uh, social and welfare programs, or would this replace some of the programs? Uh, I would say it would replace a income, social assistance. And I want to make it very, very clear. We're talking about income only. And that's where we want to divide the system is mm-hmm. for income, it comes through a tax base. And then, of course, all your other benefits, such as your health care, education, employment assistance, those types of benefits that people use, they would still be in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're strictly saying that, yes, and the Ontario Works and the Ontario Disability Support Program and all of the other social programs, social supports would be available. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, Could I? I'm, yeah. Oh. Sorry, I just I just wanted to add to that. I think you know one of the reasons that people stay on 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 social assistance is because of the drug benefits, you know, and, and some of the other benefits, but drug benefits especially because we know when you live in poverty, you tend to be sick more. So uh, so farmer care, for example, is a program that uh, would if we're going to replace the social assistance system, we would need some mechanism to make sure that people's medications are covered, for example. So um, even though we're saying people should have an adequate income and it should be free from all the regulations that come with social assistance, some of the supports are really important. Um, and, and the other, I guess the other point is that, you know, people will use basic income, people like artists or mm-hmm. entrepreneurs or farmers, people who wouldn't would never apply for social assistance. But if you're a, a, a worker in the gig economy and you're trying to juggle three part-time jobs, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you would be eligible for basic income if your income fell below a certain level. So it's um, although you know we, it would replace social assistance, it would also be much more accessible for other people who are living in poverty. We know that 70% of people who live in poverty actually have jobs. (laughs) Um, They're just not making enough to bring them above the poverty line. So, so it would, um, it would provide a lot of benefit. I think it would also um, give young people some security as they're starting out to try, try things without committing to them. Uh, it would give people, you know, opportunity to do things like, you know, the unpaid internships that young people have to do. Um, there would be, you know, there would be money for that. It would also recognize some of the incredibly important volunteer work and community work that people are doing. Artists that artists do, for example, the work that you're doing. I don't know if it's paid, but um, <laughs> it would recognize a lot of. What's that? You're laughing? <laughs> no, I said it, it's not. It's yeah, not right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so basic income could provide, you know, if you're living below a threshold level, it would give you income to do what you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm and I'm curious as to uh, both of you's opinions on this, but uh, in the public discourse, uh, 
what do you believe is the biggest misconception about basic income? I think the number one that we hear, if this is available, people will not work. This is the number one thing that we hear, that mm -hmm. we can't trust people to have an income and do with it what they should be doing. We've got a rule over them. And I think, you know, we get back into this colonialism, uh, thinking about we've got to tell people we know what's best for them. Um, so there is this element of trust that people think, no, if you're going to get an income work for it, there should be no, no handouts. Mm -hmm. And that's a big misconception because the outcomes of the pilots now, again, there was one in Men the Mencom project that was done in the 1970s. And then, of course, the most recent one was the Ontario Basic Income Pilot. So with the first one with Mencom, uh, a study was done long after the fact. And what they, in fact, found is, no, people continued to work. Some people lowered their hours because of childcare, but the other thing that was really interesting is uh, the amount of people that graduated from high school or continued with their education was so much higher. And that was an amazing findings. So even with the Ontario uh, pilot, there was findings that no, people didn't quit work if they were working. There was people on the basic income pilot that continued to work and receive a supplement because as Elaine had earlier pointed out, people were not making enough to get by on. So that's the first misconception. Elaine, do you have anything? Yeah, and to I think add that's the that number one. one that you know people people won't work. Um, and again, it, that that discounts the work that people mm -hmm. do do. And, uh, you know, maybe there's going to be a small proportion of people who are going to, you know, I don't know, be happy with $20,000 a year. It's not a huge mm -hmm. amount of money. And most people, you know, if you, you have a small group of people who are maybe in the in the basement playing video games, well, mm -hmm. I would think that would get boring after a while. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah, I just can't imagine that people are going to want to do to to quote unquote do nothing for for maybe for a short time but not for a very long time and even if they do it's still I'm not I don't care <laughs> quite honestly <laughs> yeah for sure and uh, um the second part of that you know, this yeah. is saying that we can't afford to do that in Canada which we believe is untrue we're already paying for it large mm -hmm. with what we're seeing already you can't walk down Toronto streets without walking over people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the health impacts alone and what it's mm -hmm. doing to our healthcare system. I know even here in Hamilton, there's been numerous research done based on mm -hmm. your income and where you live in the city and the impacts you're dying 10 years earlier, having more disease so what we're saying is, yes, if you um, end the social assistance system, so take the money for benefits and administration and put this towards basic income, um, take some of the uh, tax credits, reform those, and then look at the tax system as a whole to ensure mm. there's not the uh, inequality that's going on between the rich and the poor. Uh, we believe that there money, there is money there to pay for a basic income. And then long term is 
you know, the idea is you're going to see some savings, both from the criminal uh, justice system and also from the healthcare system. So we do know that there's some statistics out there showing that the people, a lot of people that end up in jail, it has to do with an income. Because they're not having a proper income, then they're resorting to other uh, means, which is illegal activity. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you talked about the studies, Carrie, uh, that have been uh, been carried out and the benefits that uh, the study uh, documented. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. About uh, I I believe the the Canadian Senate. Uh, uh, as for a study to be made for uh, some type of basic income, and we there was a there was a pilot a basic income pilot here in Ontario that was just uh, uh, that the present government basically shut down. And could you talk a little bit about what sort of uh, uh, what sort of benefits were those studies? demonstrated that the basic income could provide in terms of uh, like socially and uh, like how it affects people people's lives and uh, I might also add that obviously some types of work uh, for people who have uh, concerns about uh, people not working some type of works are work isn't uh, recognized in, in the way we we uh, uh, we organize our economy so childcare for example for uh for parents who look after their child uh we have those types of things that even community work and uh that that has a positive impact to society but that's not necessarily recognized so could you talk a little bit about how a basic income could uh recognize that sort of work and the benefit that uh we see in terms of uh the changes that it brings to people's lives Great. Well, do you want to take the lead on this one? Because this was a lot of your book too, Elaine. Yeah, there's, oh my gosh. I mean, um, it's really a tragedy that um, Doug Ford canceled the pilot in the sense that it was such a rigorous evaluation plan mm-hmm. in place. And it it just seems, it's such a loss that we, all that data got thrown out the window. I mean, there was um, data on food insecurity, on hospital admissions, uh, workforce participation, housing, and it was really extensive. So what we're left with um, is data that's not as rigorous from the pilot, mm-hmm. but still really compelling and really profound. I remember actually being in Hamilton and hearing um, a panel of people who had been on the basic income pilot. And uh, one one woman who what I think was in her early 60s, had been on the Ontario Disability Support Program, ODSP, for many, many years, and she was on the pilot. And she was very proud. So the first thing she did with her money, she bought a new um, walker, you know, the kind with the seat that you can sit on, and then she bought new glasses. And then she gave uh, a donation to a community organization that had been supporting her for many years. And she was so proud of being able to to give back to that community organization. It was really, I had tears in my eyes listening to her actually. Um, the kind the sense of dignity that people had. And and you know, we're talking about a basic income that was set at 75% of the poverty level. So we're still not at poverty level, but it was about double what people were getting on Ontario Works and ODSP. Um, 
so, you know, people talked about not waking up in the middle of the night, having panic attacks, wondering how they were going to, you know, pay the rent and put food on the table, not going to the doctor as often, having to be, being able to stop some of their prescription medication for anxiety and depression. Um, you know, people who were fat lost weight, people who were skinny gained weight. Um, they tried new fruits and vegetables. They stopped going to the food bank. Uh, they enrolled in um, higher education programs. Um, they found better housing. They they had space to breathe. You know that um, there's actually research that shows that when you live in the kind of you know when you live in poverty, it actually uh, decreases your IQ reversibly. But this kind of stress, like the the stress of living in poverty, takes up so much space in your brain that it actually decreases your ability to make good decisions. So people had room to actually to breathe and to um, to make better decisions um, for their lives and to, you know, give their kids small treats or buy a new winter coat or go visit relatives that they hadn't been able to see, you know, who live out of town for many years. I mean, the stories just go on and on, but they speak to the sense of, um, dignity and belonging that people felt um, that, you know, that someone was, someone cared. <laughs> it's, it's just, it just breaks my heart to think um, that this government, um, what they did to 4,000 people, they just kind of pulled the rug in the first place because they really didn't trust that government would do this. And it turned out that they were right. You know, they had good reason to be suspicious. So, sorry, I could talk for a long time. But, but overwhelming, <laughs> overwhelming, they were, the findings that they had from participants was they had improved health. Mm-hmm. And that was critical. And mm-hmm. as Elaine said, the stories were amazing. And I know one gentleman, Tim, and I knew him for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time he was able to visit family in Timmins mm-hmm. because he didn't have the resources. The difference that income made in that gentleman in that short amount of time was just amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, Abel, you had mentioned the Senate and mm-hmm. basic income. And so, yes, Senator Kim Pate has put through a bill. I believe it's had its second reading and mm-hmm. it's still C233. And it's really advocating or requesting that the government put together a framework for a basic mm-hmm. income. Mm-hmm. So there is some support there. And of mm-hmm. course, we're supportive of this too. So I, I think these are important moves. There are quite a few advocates and people that are um, seeing the devastating effects of poverty and want to make a difference. And this is definitely a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I look at the COVID-19 pandemic, it seems like it's impacted the way, you know, we talk about these social assistance program because you realize that there's so, so many gaps in terms of coverage. I'm curious uh, as to your thoughts about the, whether programs such as serve or the, the student benefit, uh, the, the student benefit program, uh, mm-hmm. Do you think, do you believe that those have made Ontarians and politicians more receptive to discussing basic income? I believe in some ways that it has because they recognize, hey, there's a lot of gaps here and they had to do something because there's no way the system uh, 
or social assistance could have helped all of these people that were all of a sudden without jobs, nor would some of them even qualify, which is the scary part. So I think for some of the politicians, they recognize definitely as Sir showed the cracks in our our systems. Um, I've also heard some negative pieces that they're saying, oh, because of CERT, people didn't go back to work because mm-hmm. they had this $2,000. Well, for the most part, that is not true. And what was happening is it was a disincentive for some of them to go back to work because they were getting called back to jobs, making less than, well, minimum wage wasn't $15 at that time, but they weren't being guaranteed the hours. Between all of these shutdowns and whatnot, they couldn't manage. So they definitely had to make a choice that do they go back to work lose the CERP and make probably a quarter of what they were doing because there was no alternatives. Um, Those are the things that we have heard. Um, People did have to make difficult decisions, especially parents with kids and maybe the childcare was closed or because of the constant uh, breakouts or their kids were trying to learn online at home. So there was a lot of uh, benefits to the CERP And I think people realized how many cracks there are out there. So I'll ask Elaine if she wanted to add anything else on to that. Well, I think, I mean, it did show, I mean, we've had this idea, you know, since the 1980s that, you know, government is the problem. You know, we heard Mm -hmm. Ronald Ronald Reagan said that. And, you know, with neoliberal kind of political philosophy, the idea is that, you know, government is bad and government is the problem. And what, what the experience of the pandemic showed is that government can be a force for good. And it showed that we could put together uh, an income support program to support, or there were, I think something like in the end, 9 million people who accessed that program. That's a lot of people. Um, and it was rolled, I mean, it was rolled out quickly. It did have some problems. I think the fact that it left out the poor, you know, people who didn't make $5,000 in employment the year before, that's, that, in my mind, was unacceptable. Uh, there was also the problem of it. You know, you if you once you made more than two thousand dollars a month, you just were completely cut off. And that is that was that right? I think, or maybe you could make. I forget, but it was just like a cut off once you made so much money. So, um, if we were in, if you if that system had been in place sooner, they could have had the cutoff, as uh, Carrie said earlier, could have been tapered down more gradually. But that that created problems for certainly for seasonal work, because people said, well, you know, why would I go to work when I if I make I think it was if you made a thousand dollars, it was one thousand. Yeah. yeah. You, so you had three thousand dollars total and then you'd be completely cut off. So people would want said, you know, they would they didn't want to do that. So that created problems. But I think the biggest thing was to show that it was possible and it was possible mm-hmm. to deliver it through the income tax system. And it also helped ordinary Canadians understand that this is possible and feasible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because my next question was going to be actually about how these same benefits did have some income thresholds where a lot of people didn't meet them and they still didn't get them. And till this day, you know, I know some people that weren't able to access those programs, right? So I was just, my next question was going to be how can 
basic income solve this and ensure that everybody, like the people that need it, at least get covered and there's no cracks like we saw in CERB. Yeah, that's if, that's what that's what we want, and we want mm-hmm. everyone to have an income, have a floor under their income, so that nobody like solid floor that nobody falls through. And you know, it seems that the income tax system is probably the best way to do that. I mean, some critics have said, "Well, what you know?" There's people who don't file their income tax taxes. Well, if we had basic income that was delivered through the income tax system, they'd have a motivation to do their income taxes, and we could we could also set up. Um, clinics to help people fill those up, like, you know, in places where, you know, low income people gather, whether it's in, you know, some, some um, healthcare teams actually now hire people to actually to help people fill out their income tax so they can get the tax refunds and rebates. So, yeah. And that was a problem even with the guaranteed income supplement with the pension that they found that there was some gaps that people weren't filling out their income tax. So they were missing out on this supplement and they built the infrastructure to help people with their Mm -hmm. income tax. We look at families, they cannot get their child tax benefits without completing an income tax. So yes, we're part way there. And if this system had been built before the pandemic, I think it would have been a lot easier for people that had gone through this whole change over the last two years in their income. It would have been existing and it would have stopped some of this break and clamoring around to get it started. So, And I just have one final question. <laughs> Carrie, we talked a bit before uh, we got started about, you know, there was the Ontario March, I believe it was yesterday. So just your thoughts on the day, how did it unfold? And are you optimistic that there are enough advocates out there to apply pressure to politicians and just get on more Ontarians behind, uh, you know, getting basic income in the province? Well, number one, it was a great day, perfect weather. And I got to tell you, that's the first time I met Elaine in person because <laughs> we have been working on Zoom for the last well, ever since I joined the movement. So it was wonderful to see a lot of people out there. Do we need more advocates? Definitely. And that's why we gladly took this interview to get the word out there uh, during the preparation for the election, because Elaine and I are on a committee looking at activity we could do to raise the profile during the election. And some of the things we've done is uh, have provincial Zoom calls to get people engaged and talk about actions they could take, one of which was attending the march. But there's so many other actions people could take other than, you know, going up and down the streets with our signs is one thing that's out there right now is a pledge, is a candidate pledge that Mm -hmm. you could send. And anybody, go to basicincomenowwebsite.ca And you will find all these tools. And what we're encouraging people to do is go there. There's a pledge. It's very easy for you. All you have to do is put in your name, your postal code, and it will send a letter to your candidate saying, will you take the pledge for a basic Mm -hmm. income? Um, That's one way. We're noticing we've got quite a few people, uh, quite a few candidates. As far as I think last week, Friday, when I looked, there was no progressive conservatives that have signed the pledge. 
unfortunately. Um, but that is the uh, party that did cut the basic income pilot. But there are NDP, Green Party, Liberals. A lot of people have signed the pledge saying, yes, we'll move this forward. And mm-hmm. they have an interest in a basic income. So we're positive with what is coming out there. Uh, so those are some of the activities that are happening. And we're just saying, take the time to talk. Talk mm-hmm. to these people that are calling you and ask them their opinion. You know, mm-hmm. what if you were elected? If I voted for you and you got in, what are you going to do to move this along? Now, we do know and we're, you know, we know the provincial government can't do this on their own. We know it's a big undertaking, but we're asking them to, first of all, work with the federal government to move this along. Secondly, what can they do with the social assistance system to make it a little bit more accessible, high, increase the rates, make it less conditional? Because working in a system, like I worked in the social assistance system for 33 years, and I know how difficult and how intrusive it is. And it is very conditional. Mm-hmm. So this is what we're asking for. And many reviews of social assistance has been completed. And we're asking, please, take some of the rules away to make it easier for people. Mm-hmm. Elaine, anything else you saw from the March or activity that we want to take on? Oh, well, the March was, I, uh, I just got back from Toronto um, just a, an hour and a half ago, but um, I'm in Kingston. Um, it was some, it was fun. And it was really, it was great to see so many young people. And it was great mm-hmm. to see people with disabilities or a number of people in wheelchairs. And there was uh, at least one person with a, you know, who was blind, who had his guide dog with him. Um, but I, I guess that I, I was, we were among the oldest people there, I would say, Carrie. I mean, yeah. it was really great to see um, so many young people, which gives mm-hmm. me a lot of hope. Um, the other thing just to mention um, that's kind of exciting, not not in Ontario, but nationally, is that the whole the government of Prince Edward Island is um, working with some basic income advocates. There's civil servants, retired politicians and some basic income economists who are working together to try to um, they they're in the process of developing a plan that uh, PEI could just pick up and run with once they get federal funding. So. The government of Prince Edward Island now has asked the federal government for money for a basic income demonstration project, is, I think, three times now. Um, so they're just waiting. And uh, this is, a, I think, it's a great idea to have a whole province as a mm-hmm. pilot or a demonstration project, much like Medicare started in Saskatchewan. Um, you know, we, you, can ro- you can work out some of the kinks before you roll it out across the country and PEI just seems like the perfect place because it's small. I think it's like, I don't know, under 200,000 people in the whole province. And, um, you know, it could work out some of the, some of the kinks and what Mm -hmm. kinds of supports are needed. So that's kind of exciting. And I think, you know, if the right government were elected in Ontario, they could kind of put some pressure. Well, I suppose, especially if a liberal government were elected with a liberal government in the federal um, federally they could put some pressure on mm-hmm. Ottawa to actually to fund that um, it would that would be that's really exciting um, I think that's probably the most exciting thing that's happening nationally mm-hmm. um, so 
you know, no matter who gets elected in Ontario, we're going to have a lot of work to do, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, for this last this last question, I'll ask it to you, Elaine, since you mentioned, uh, since, first of all, you co-wrote a book uh, regarding this subject, and also you mentioned the ideological skepticism that uh, we've had as a society uh, of government since the 80s, since the the era of neoliberalism. And I feel like with COVID, all over you, the the support that government had to offer all over the world, that uh, ideological barrier is kind of breaking. We've had we've had these like neoliberal leaders across the world who would say that they would spend as much as possible to get rid of this crisis in France, for example, or all over the world. Uh, so. I wondered what what is the best or most comprehensive criticism that you've gotten uh, in regards to basic income or basic income as you propose it from people who aren't skeptical of government? So, sorry, what's the most comprehensive criticism we've of gotten basic, of, of basic, basic income. income? You've gotten from people who aren't that skeptical of government. Um, who aren't skeptical of government or who yes, are, who aren't or are um, not? Well, I think the two things that I mean, I, I did a PowerPoint uh, presentation uh, quite a few years ago now with mm-hmm. all the all the skepticism that we got from mm-hmm. all, like from all right across the ideological spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's been most surprising is the kind of skepticism on the left, because <laughs> mm-hmm. there are a number of kind of prominent left um, political analysts who are skeptical or and activists. Um, that's been surprising. But I think, you know, the two that we talked about were the, are the two common ones. It's like that, you know, poor, mm-hmm. poor, pe- poor people won't work. And uh, if you give them money for money for free, um, and, uh, you know, we can't afford it. Uh, and I'm not sure if they're, yeah, but what, often if you start, so for the, for the people, especially on the right, who, mm-hmm. when we were in at Queens park yesterday and there was a freedom rally, you know, mm-hmm. with the kind of anti-vax, um, folks and, one woman came along and was asking about basic income who want, who was on her way to the next March. And um, she just dismissed us as being brainwashed, you know, Oh, you're brainwashed too, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, le- so the folks on the right, I would say based, I mean, there are some libertarian basic mm-hmm. income advocates. And so there are some on the left who are skeptical of something that could be supported by, you know, the left and the right. Um, mm-hmm. And, so the details of a basic income are really important. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our, our the Ontario Basic Income Network's position is that, you know, no one should be worse off and mm-hmm. that it's part of, like, you, if you have an income floor, well, you need that, mm-hmm. but then you mm-hmm. need other programs as well. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but. Um, uh, I was, yes, I think in some aspect you did answer because I know on, on the right, some, uh, there are some libertarian advocates for, uh, a basic income, but oftentimes they would use the basic income to cut away all those other uh, support programs that the government offers. So people would be left worse off, especially uh, uh, retirees. Uh, and on the left, I've seen uh, some criticisms 
in the U.S., for example, not too, I'm not too familiar with the criticisms uh, on the Canadian left of uh, basic income. But uh, in in the U.S., for example, I, I know uh, uh, one critic was saying Paul Krugman uh, was saying that uh, he would prefer that the resources that would be used to uh, to put in place that that system, the, the basic income, to be used to expand other uh, programs, so child care, um, health care, dental plans, or that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm wondering if there are some like perhaps left-leaning criticisms that are more uh, uh, that are more from Canadian people that would reflect the Canadian reality, since we have a healthcare system. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so one of the most prominent critics is Armin Yelnilson, who's a mm-hmm. labor economist, and she's mm-hmm. adamantly against basic income because she thinks the money should be put into services. So, mm-hmm. there, and there's some talk about you know universal services as opposed mm-hmm. to you know uh, basic income. Um, I would say both and we need like why mm-hmm. do we have to choose? <laughs> and and you know sometimes I think. On the far left, there's there are some kind of far left types who um, think that you know capitalism is uh, you know so full of contradictions that we can't do anything to lessen those contradictions, so we can bring on the revolution. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I mean I don't think it's I don't think poor people should have to bear the cost of waiting for the revolution. Um, you know, so to my, like we live in a market economy, we may not like that, but we do live in a market economy. And so people need money to survive. So um, then the other uh, criticism on the left, I think is a bit of a, um, there's a, often on the left, I think the arguments are unfair because they create um an argument that nobody in Canada is advocating. So for example, John mm-hmm. Clark, who's an anti-poverty activist has talked about basic income as a subsidy for low wage work. And I, I was always puzzled by that. I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, because we're advocating for a basic income that would allow people to walk away from low paid work if they weren't being, mm-hmm. if they weren't adequately, um, you know, um, their wages were inadequate or that work was unsafe. But what's happening in the United States is that uh, there are all kinds of pilots happening where people are getting small amounts of money, maybe two or three or $400 a month, which makes a huge difference in a low income household. But that is a subsidy for low wage mm-hmm. work because, you know, you're saying, well, the low wage, you're putting the you know, you're not asking to raise the, the wages, you're giving people extra money. So I think, you know, that criticism is fair in that context, but not in the Canadian context. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Carrie and Elaine, I don't have any more questions. I'm about you. Have any. No, that's, well, that's good. Honestly, thank you. Well, thank you for giving us your time. Uh, you know, I hope we hope we can do our part and help spread the spread the message, especially with our younger audience, you know, because uh, I know some don't even know that there's a, basic income network in Ontario. So I think, I hope we could do our part, but again, thank you for, for taking the time to sit with us. Thank you so thank much. You. So thank just, you and, for your interest. Yeah. And, you know, because I think you have an audience that is maybe a little different than what we normally target, you know, um, and it sounds like you have a, a an audience that might be um, more racialized and, you know, that it's the same group that is young people and, you know, BIPOC folks are most affected by poverty. And so 
it would all, basic income would also disproportionately improve the lives of you know racialized groups and and women and young people who are the ones who uh, who are more likely to be in poverty. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's great. I don't. How did you How did you learn about us? Uh, I was actually we had we had spoken to Abajit like about a, a week before, and then I just I, I remember I was on social media and then I and I, I just came across uh, you know the march basic income now. So I saw there was a march. I'm mm-hmm. just like, okay, what? Who's organizing it? What's happening? So I went down the rabbit hole, <laughs> and then I just I, okay, I'm like, okay, we should. I'm really, I would love to sit down with them, talk a bit about this, and see what the what is their message, you know, what is their, what are their ideas. So basically, that's how I found it, social media. That's great. That's good to know. Thank you. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'm very despairing about social media, so it's good to hear good stories. Yeah, no, for sure. All right. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for coming on. Thank you both. Thank you. Have, Have a, a good, good day. Thanks, Elaine. Okay, thank you. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.